I'm Don Stobart. And I'm Alan Gregory. And we are Pennywise Dreadful. As usual, we'd like to start with a content warning. So remember that Stephen King writes horror fiction and he frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during this podcast especially, we'll be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. So today we're going to look at The Stand and I'm joined... Um, by Andy Tate, Dr Andy Tate, and again by Dr Jen Ashworth. Um, guys, did you enjoy this book? Yes, very much. <laughs> I've been enjoying this book since 1987 and I haven't stopped yet. <laughs> it's quite a big book, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. <laughs> obviously it didn't take you that long to read it through the monster. No, no, that's right. I, I, in fact, it's a book that I knew before I'd even picked it up because my, my friend uh, and mentor in Stephen King, I think in the dark, told me the whole story before reading it and I didn't feel spoiled by it I kind of felt prepared for it and it was one of the first Stephen King books then I knew and then read uh, when I was in my mid-teens. And, uh, I think it was the second Stephen King book that I read and I read it when I was at school and the first one that I read was It. My first yeah. Stephen King was mm. It followed by The Stand and this is my this is my copy of The Stand that well, I bought. Very this is dog-eared the, and well-loved. dog-eared well-loved mm. 1992 hard copy when it was first unabridged it's like the family bible now, isn't it it's kind of you, you know just open it at random for advice for the day <laughs> i've got notes, yes. and notes red letters yeah i am um, i remember reading it when i was at school and and finding it quite frightening and then not coming back to it for a long time but since then as an adult i think i've read it fairly often and it's a book that i read when i'm ill <laughs> which is probably quite a, a bad idea but you know if you're ever in bed and feeling rubbish and it's you want something that's gonna I don't know I would say comfort but it's not exactly <laughs> a comforting well it's, it's comforting for me because the world is so vast and well narrated that I feel like I can live inside it and maybe there's something about all the flu and captain trips it's quite comforting when you've just got a mild cold and yeah. you're malingering a little bit. I, I kind of identify with that. Although there's a lot of books I would avoid when feeling low physically or emotionally. This oddly isn't one of them. Mm. Um, and I think it is because of Stephen King's storytelling gift yeah. where although he's building a world and then destroying the world, he's also inviting you into this kind of vast narrative continuity mm. where, where you can you, you can believe that characters are living and breathing yeah. and that there mm. are people you might like to meet yeah. and people that you would like to run away from and all of those kinds of things it's like a boxed set of a book it's i think people yes. probably yep. when they're ill sit and watch netflix and you gobble up and you can have 10 episodes at a time and even when i go back to it now I may not read it from start to finish. I may think, oh, I want to read the bit where where Stu's in hospital, or you know, I want to read the bit where Nick is in prison. And you can just go and they're like mini episodes, yep. I guess, in a, in a way that a box set works. Mm, I think that's right. And I think something I think I said to you a couple of weeks ago, Jen, when we were talking about the podcast, was that it does have a soapy quality, yeah. and I meant that as a as a compliment. Mm. Uh, I think it's it's what a lot of the Stephen King novels that I like have going for them, and um, it's one of the things that that 
um, I like still about Dickens. Mm. Um, p- people worry about whether it's high art or low art. I know you've got reservations about Dickens. <laughs> I'm uh, doing my best. Really <laughs> <to life>. it's, <laughs> it's not happened yet, but I have not given up. But I think there's, there's similar things being describing it as a box set. I think he's absolutely mm-hmm. right because it, it does create a world to which you want to return, yeah. even if that world has horrible things taking place within it. Mm. There's that wit and specificity even though things are kind of recognisable and familiar I think it's the the, because there's a lot about this book that I don't enjoy and I don't like and perhaps we'll we'll talk about that later on but what I go back to it for is less that huge story about the battle between good and evil but I like um, I like I like the, the domestic particularity yeah. of it I like the part where um, where Campion is telling his wife to um, they've got to get up, they've got to go now and we get this view right into her head and she's she's been saving this money and we get the impression very quickly that they don't have a lot of money and she goes this is my house money and really really tiny mm. tiny domestic objects as a way into and a suggestion of a bigger world yeah. and a whole I, psychology of I like character. that when they're talking about um, the kitchen, the Tupperware jars yeah. in the fridge that yeah. have got the, the ends of the food yeah. in and he's really cross but that's yeah. it's exactly that and we're not, not going to see them for very much longer no. they're going to go and they're going to be dead but mm. you get into their world and mm. you care yeah. that they're going to die Yeah. so when they're on the plane later on and they're having hysterics you care that yeah. that's what's happening to them yeah. and I think he's really clever at doing that yeah, it's interesting because it seems that what we've all said that we enjoy about this book is the vastness of it and the you know it's almost like three or four novels in one. But he's also such I think such a good short story writer, mm-hmm. and I think as well as episodes, we we could think of this as a collection of short stories yes. that that have been woven together. Yeah, the specificity of place mm. and time mm. and character. Yeah. Um, you know, there's bits I guess don't date all that well, um, and as you say, there, there might be things you want to return to, into thinking about the problem. So I, I don't necessarily emphasise those problems, but um, I, I absolutely agree that it's it's kind of wonderfully specific mm. and, and rich mm. in its detail. And mentioning taking being taken into the, the specific domestic circumstances it reminds me that the very first book full-length book I read by Stephen King was Salem's Lot mm. um, and it, you know at holiday where I remember all of my holiday reading because I was 16 mm. and uh, that was the first book and I was in a caravan in France and I was terrified um, and it's yeah it's a, it's a horror novel mm. but I think I, I wasn't as sophisticated a reader and uh, at the time I wasn't I hadn't read enough to know the kinds of things and the kind of tricks he might be playing. But the reason that book works so well is that he builds up character and place mm-hmm. in this very intimate, domestic way, you know, ordinary, everyday details mm-hmm. of the town. And if it would simply been about, you know, the vampire with pointy teeth on the cover, mm-hmm. um, which was a lot of the draw for teenage boys, I think, mm-hmm. the, the book would have none of the kind of power that it, mm-hmm. that it has. And the stand is very similar. Yeah, it is. That I'm, I'm much less interested in the... I guess the the supernatural, the magicy, the the monstery parts of it. I don't find Randall Flagg as a character that interesting at all. Um, I find Larry a fascinating character. I think he's probably one of my favourite characters. Lloyd, I think, is mm. a really 
Mm. I, my, my quiet favourite is the Trash Can Man. Oh, poor I Trash Can Man. I think he's such a tragic he character. Is, he mm. is, and Mrs. Semple's pension check. Yeah. I only haven't heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but they all have these very um, generous, sympathetic, complex backstories. And then... Randall Flagg is just a monster. Yeah. And, and I think a novel like this requires a monster as its engine, but I don't even think we're supposed to be that interested in him. We're supposed to be interested in all these quite ordinary, flawed, wreck it, you know, relatable is, is quite mm. a boring word to use about fiction, but, but they, it, are. It, they are. They are, yeah. yeah. There's a, that kind of credibility. Yes. Um, yeah, relatable is, is a word that we struggle not to use and I wonder why mm. literary critics distance themselves f- from it in all sorts of ways but it, it, it you know it's a basic mm. fact of the way in which we we read we, yeah. we do want to connect it doesn't mean to say we have to have had mm. the same experiences I think the novel um struggles a bit once Randall turns up mm, in a yeah. way and it's in a kind of 230 pages in yeah. certainly it's the extended edition which isn't the edition I read um, in the late eighties, I think the, that, that that edition would have been four or five hundred pages yeah, that's shorter. Yeah, says, isn't it? It's about four four hundred. pages. Yeah, then. that that's and it. A lot of it's Trash Can Man's journey across the desert. Right. The first yeah. That's yeah. Been added later. Um, yes, and the, I think there's there's military stuff yeah. that gets yeah. that gets truncated. But I I mean it's interesting because there are now a whole body of popular post catastrophe novels mm. uh, that are. You know, literary in the sense that they might win prizes and be well reviewed, mm-hmm. but actually they're page turners, and I think they owe an enormous debt yeah. mm. to this novel, both yeah. young adult fiction and other more recent fi- fiction like Emily St. John Mandel's yeah. Station Eleven. Yeah. I don't know whether Emily had read The Stand, mm. but it's somehow abroad in the culture uh, in all sorts of ways. If, if I ever had a student who wanted to write kind of post disaster type fiction I would say well you you cannot do this until you have read The Stand yeah whether you whether you like it or hate it I I wanted to pick up this idea about relatability because I think it's something that is I think you're right that some literary critics can be a little bit squeamish about that and it's something that Stephen King does well in almost all of his fiction and, and really well in The Stand but reading this first as a teenage girl and then again as a as an adult what i was disappointed by was how um how little there was to relate to in the women characters Mm -hmm. and and i think that's a real real shame and it's not something that i think king has a problem with um i think one of his finest books is rose madder where in that first 30 pages we are let inside the mind of an abused woman and it is forensically horrifically detailed and the degree of thought and understanding that has gone into that I think is is amazing we just don't really see that in no. the stand no I absolutely agree Franny is she starts off so strong mm. so amazing that she's going to be a great character but then you get to the end and she just needs a man to prop her up she grows mm. a baby and waits for her man yeah that's it she, she waits and gestates and mm. she there's this little speech that she she's when she's they're traveling with Stu and she's thinking Oh, am I going to get together with Stu or not? And the way she thinks about that is to think that in this post-Captain Trips landscape, 
um, the world has no more use for feminism, mm. that, that we're back in the dark ages, that what she has to offer is a womb and she needs a man. And it was, I'm not sure that King endorses that, but the action of the novel certainly seems to. Yes. Lots of post-apocalyptic or post-catastrophe fiction is dependent on a messiah mm. figure, isn't it? So mm. we have this demonic figure. Yeah. And we have his his antonym yes. in the prophet, Mother Abigail. Yeah, Mother yeah. Abigail. Exactly. You know, interesting that we, we, we you know, we get um, the f- potential female mm. savior, but again, um, perhaps the the, the 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 worldview is too Manichian for her to be a mm. credible woman. She's mm. this archetype instead. She is. I mean, Randall Flagg calls her your old black witch. And I don't think she's characterised much beyond that. No. Despite the fact that we get a lot of her backstory, we get a lot of, you know, we're, we're allowed into her point of view, so much is made of her physical frailty. That seems to be her, dif- you know, she's a vessel, She's she mm. she listens and she, she takes out, but I, I don't get And sense. she's flawed, isn't she? When you get yeah. to the end, yeah. she doesn't get to go into the kingdom of God. She, she's no, left she's... at the gates, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. that, it says something like that, yeah. that she's not allowed into the kingdom mm. because she filled with pride and sinned and that's why she went off and mm. it twigs and things. Yeah. Well, that those displaced Judeo-Christian elements, I was kind of searching for the right term here because... It is a big part of American culture, yes. and this text comes before a lot of the turn to apocalypse in Christian, evangelical Christian mm-hmm. subculture mm-hmm. writing of the 90s, the Left Behind series, mm-hmm. although there are books that come before it, like um, The Late uh, Great Planet Earth, uh, for example. So there's that all that genre yeah. fiction that exists. Yeah. But, but Stephen King is aware enough in terms of his own background and yeah. the culture that he's in that in one sense what he's doing is his own rewriting of some of the prophecies of the book of Revelation mm. yeah. and and other bits of um, Jewish apocalyptic. Yeah. So you know, it's a plague yeah. that's being visited on yeah. on the yeah. planet, but certainly on you know on on the modern Egypt, which is America. You know this this powerful wealthy state uh, that is exploiting its people. And I think you know those biblical elements, the messianic element. Um, maybe the struggle for, between good and evil, but I think it's done in a much more particular and specific way as well um, in terms of what's happening with the characters uh, is at work. It's Old Testament to me that, in, and, and it's, I mean, you all know more about this than I do, Andy, but reading it just as a reader with no particular expertise, this battle between God and evil, good and evil, the you know, we have Randall flag on one side and, and whoever owns that finger that comes out of the sky doesn't seem to me to be that much better than Randall flag. It's it's very old mm. testament, the God that requires a sacrifice, the God that wants a bomb yeah. to clear off. This is the God that, that flooded the earth, the one that sent the plague. And it it's that was the bit that was frightening to me, not not Randall flag. The fact that that afterwards we have this um, bit of America that is toxic, the bomb's gone off, no one's ever going to be able to go near it. And they say over and over again throughout this book, well, all the technology, all the tools are just lying around waiting for us to pick them up again. It's almost like a a punishment for progress or or intelligence in some way. Certainly an anxiety about 
progress yeah. and technology, which is as old as technology yes. itself. And I mean, as you were were saying, um, those stories of destruction are really as old as story yeah. itself. Yeah. And I mean, some of them are biblical, but there are countless yes. other stories from mm. from mythologies that came mm. before mm. the Jewish and Christian yeah. stories that may have had a shaping encounter mm. with them stories of flood and so on yeah. and it's interesting the, the flood as a as a one of the key kind of stories that anticipates this this isn't a flood mm. uh, but to borrow a phrase from from recent Margaret Atwood story it's a kind of waterless flood flood mm. because it's it's something that brings about the destruction of most of the people on the planet yeah. with a remnant um, and as we read the early pages of the book, I guess we're we're asking that question. If we've read any other post-apocalyptic stories, you know who is going to be saved mm. and who is going to be damned. Mm. Um, uh, and I was making guesses. Mm-hmm. I, I could, I, you know, I could remember some of the characters who lived, mm. and some of them it's absolutely clear. But that that notion of of of, of God damning mm. things, I mean, it comes from a very violent tradition within apocalyptic yeah. storytelling, and it's not the only way of understanding apocalypse. Mm. You know that apocalypse. Is a term we use um, as, as as signifying the, the violent end of things, mm. but it means something being revealed. Mm. Um, Do you think that happens in the stand that something's revealed? It's an interesting question. I think it happens more at the level of relationships yeah. and personal yeah. understanding, uh, because I think, I mean, partly my little theory of how post-apocalyptic fiction is: it's much more about survival mm-hmm. than it is about destruction. Mm-hmm. It uses destruction. Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a beginning of story in it's all sorts like of ways. That, isn't it? You could think of post-apocalyptic fiction as a whole as intensely optimistic because yeah. there is a post, there, there is yes. something that comes yeah. after. Fran has her baby and it's sick for a bit but it lives and so we know that the, yes. you know, the human race is going to continue in one way or another. And it anticipates a reader. I mean, yes. that's one of the most optimistic things yeah. or kind of future-oriented things. Mm. Uh, and that's been there, I mean, whether it's part of biblical mythology or not, it's certainly in the modern tradition. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I suppose one of the key texts that anticipates this is is, is Mary Shelley's The Last Man yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, from the 1820s. And it, that itself was responding to a body of writing, particularly, you know, a, a French novel. But that's about a plague mm-hmm. that ends the world. And, it, it, you know, it starts with an anticipation that the, these are, this is a story that's been found mm-hmm. in a cave and it's been anticipated by the civils. So there's always this, this mm-hmm. kind of notion that mm-hmm. we've always been imagining what the end of the world might look like. Mm-hmm. And it might be a warning, mm-hmm. but also if there's a reader to read the story, the reader yeah. can learn. Yeah. And, and, the and that the future isn't... works like that, mm. that it's, it's not post-apocalyptic in quite the same well probably if you're a woman it is but, <laughs> but not quite the same way there's not this worldwide destruction but much is made in the handmaid's tale of the fact that the text is is an artifact mm. it takes isn't it yeah. and it's it's survived and the, yes that the existence of it in itself is supposed to be maybe not comforting but positive i mean sorry Hello, Hello, Alan. I was just going to say Justin Cronin's The Passage Trilogy has a similar sort of thing. That's artefacts yeah. and letters that yes. have been produced after yeah. Mm. and given to the new government. Mm. Is it One of the, the optimistic same? things about that and about um, The Handmaid's Tale in particular is the notion that... Um, 
this kind of society and civilization will not stand forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that that kind of horrendous patriarchy, which sees itself and perpetuates the notion that it's natural mm-hmm. and original and just the way things are, mm-hmm. will, will will come to an end. Mm-hmm. And it's like the Ozymandias mm-hmm. notion, you know, that they're, they're just these. Uh, this statue uh, um, with, with with feet left, mm. um, uh, and that everything will pass away. Everything mm. is transient, and there's a bit of that in the stand, isn't there? But it's, it's interesting how it's done in the stand because there is this implication that Vegas is this kind of Sodom and Gomorrah type place, mm. and you know it's the awful place and the the decadent, the immoral place. But when the book starts, what we are not presented with is the image of a world that deserves to be destroyed what we get is is Franny in her garden in in Maine we get we get Stu and his friends having a nice chat being friends with each other in a petrol station Mm. we get Campion who wants to take care of his wife and baby we get normal loving ordinary human beings Mm. and it's only later that there's this scary place out it's out west is yeah. it like mm. that right around <laughs> yeah yes. out west and it's i think it's a really bold interesting narrative choice well, it's a kind of inversion it then, is, isn't it, it yeah because is. there, there are lots of those catastrophe and post-catastrophe novels more recently that have a split time yeah. uh, scale or structure uh, that do indicate actually the world that we're getting rid of, you know, was pretty bad anyway. Mm. And Margaret Atwood does that in yeah. in the Mad Adam trilogy. Mm. Um, the dystopian bit of the novel is the bit before mm. Craig destroys the world. Sorry, spoilers thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking about about threads, which I'm desperate to talk about because then. because I watched it. But I think that is very similar in that we get these this couple and they mm. come from very different socio-economic backgrounds and that is the point of it but what we get is is two people who love each other having sex in a car and and it's normal and it's it's you know we get him in the pub having a pint we get her with her parents we don't get a sense of this in the bigger picture of these sort of world powers it's it's very very little and domestic Mm. we're not allowed to think oh we deserve it so I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about um, Vegas as this yes. kind of sort of quintessential bad place. I'm wondering whether that sort of um, continues something that John says picked up in relation to the, the Shining and the, and the Overlook Hotel being a kind of bad place mm. and whether that's something that King wants to sort of revisit continuously. But how that's also, there's a disconnect between that and <laughs> the idea of that sort of coexist in a space in which which has this kind of edenic quality to it. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're saying about Fran being in the garden, so mm. giving this sort of Eve New World figure. Yeah. Mm. Um, but also with the with the hedge structures in the shining as well. So it yeah. is something that is it's not just a one off motif, it's a recurrent thing that uh, I wonder if King's sort of seen it because it particularly because King seems to be really interested in how his fiction relates to his vision of um, America as a whole. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of America being a sort of Edenic space, a, 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 you know, mm. a new world sort of yeah. idea. It's, it's interesting the way that he 
invites us to compare um, the society that Randall Flagg is running in Vegas with the one that Abigail is, Mother Abigail sets up in Boulder in that you know, very quickly in Boulder, you know, there's the kid who gets drunk and drives the car down the street. They don't really have any strict rules. Um, things are getting, we don't get a sense that it's out of hand, but it's messy. Whereas mm. in Vegas, you know, no one's allowed to do drugs. He's got a clean up organization. It's very orderly. They are the ones who get themselves together to get the fighter planes up and running first. It, it felt to me that there was some kind of, um, I don't know, he was trying to make some political point now about methods of government. Or I think there's a strong politics. Yeah. But, I mean, Randall Flagg isn't guilty of having convictions no. either, is he? And that's, no, no. it's an interesting It's, well, it's very practical, isn't it? All this yeah. order is in service of him getting the fighter planes up and running. Yes, that's that's right. And, that, I mean, the... The um the Yates poem, the Second Coming, is invoked yeah. Yeah. sort of slightly clumsily mm-hmm. in the military base by the guy who thinks Yates is pronounced Yeats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So having a little grace note in it, and 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 the guy remembers the Second Coming and can't yeah. make head nor tail of it, but it's quoted mm-hmm. at length. Um, and there there are those lines about um, you know the best lacking all conviction mm-hmm. uh, and the worst being full of I think the line is passionate intensity mm-hmm. uh, and I think that you know the, the novel plays around with those ideas mm-hmm. in different senses I mean King is I don't know if you thank me for sense but he is um, an East Coast liberal mm-hmm. and he believes in the diversity and strangeness yeah. of America mm-hmm. and I suppose that the, the novel being published in 79 initially just can yeah, Don's not nodding, yeah, nodding. So, so that's you know it's 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 the rise of Reagan, yeah. Thatcher in yeah. the UK, um, and a sense of a, an authoritarian yes. form of economic liberalism. Um, I promise not to use the word neoliberal during this podcast, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think that that's in, the context. What they set up in Boulder is um, that kind of small town council that. Um, way of governing that yeah. America invented, but which Shirley Jackson does such a, a good job of making frightening in in her fiction. I I kind of got the sense that if we'd have stayed in Boulder for much longer, they didn't need a Randall flag. That something yeah. would have gone wrong yes. there as yes. well. Yeah. No, I mean just to pick up on what Andy was talking about in terms of the political climate in which the stand was written. I also because we've uh, me and Dawn have recently so. Reread uh, Dance Macabre for eleven twenty two stuff, mm. and I'm wondering whether it's also a sort of a sort of um, nostalgic throwback to the kind of competition between uh, Russia and America to you know build space programs and the competition between Sputnik, yes, um, the launch of Sputnik and the and the sort of um, Eisenhower's. Uh, launch of NASA in the late 50s mm. I know that seems to, it's, it seems to be a cultural moment that King is obsessed with in terms of informing his kind of he does say in Dance Macabre he makes a big deal of that's one of his earliest memories being in the cinema and the film being stopped and the, the cinema manager coming and saying mm-hmm. the Russians have launched a probe into space mm-hmm. and that being a big right. part so I'm wondering of his formation the stand is there for a kind of a an amalgamation of two cultural narratives mm. there, but I think I mean that that's I find that very convincing actually, uh, and I, it's something that King does really interestingly throughout his career that that mixture of 
um, you know, the popular page turner. We want to read what's coming next. And some of that might be clumsy and the mix of registers as well. But also the fact that it's different things fused. And it, this does read like several different kinds of books. Yeah, it does. Um, and that's, you know, I think this book could have thrived without a Randall flag. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, the fact of a plague that wipes out humanity yeah. is enough in one sense. I, I and the way in which ordinary human beings get on or don't get on with and each other. I think other. that would have been a more frightening book because yeah. instead mm. I think almost everything that happens could have happened without Mother Abigail, without Randall Flagg and I think without those characters it, it externalises what we have in us and, and mm. what we would have done and I think that would have been perhaps more secular but because of that a more frightening book. No I agree, I absolutely, the, one of the most frightening bits in that book for me is when Larry goes through the tunnel. Yes. Mm. I think that is a terrifying bit and there's no no zombies, yeah. no, no vampires, no, yeah. no devils, yeah. no anything. It's, it's yeah. him Just, in his head. Yeah. yeah. What is your, I want to ask everyone, what is your best bit of the book? Yeah. The best oh, bit on my fr- yes. <laughs> that's best. my that's my most frightening. Yeah, what's your best bit done? Oh, ooh, I don't know because I quite like Trashy's journey through yeah. the desert, mm-hmm. but I think that's maybe because I quite I feel sorry for him. Mm. I want to mother him. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think I enjoy reading that bit. I think enjoys maybe not quite the right word, but my best bit is Lloyd and Poke and their kind of crime spree mm. and, and how they end up in prison. Porkerising. Yeah, because it is what they do is so awful and the way that, that they treat each other, the way that they treat other people, the kind of mindless, meaningless violence for the sake of what, twenty dollars mm. or something. Mm. And and yet Lloyd is just such a fascinating such a fascinating character and it seems that he grows and blooms as a human being under yeah. Ralph's care and um, Ran- remind me of his name Randall Flagg yeah under Randall Flagg's care in a way that is quite troubling and he, he seems to become a better man mm-hmm. and it is unexpected and this movement from a, a kind of stoned selfish unself-aware kind of bare, you know he's, he's monstrous and it is banal and we know why he's doing it it's it's uninteresting it's the reason why people do bad things into something else i just think is it's, it's shocking and it's it's really well done mm. it's so sad i really like Lloyd. <laughs> it reminds me um rereading it of of, of Coen Brothers films mm. since that, mm. that section you know something like Fargo yeah. yes. which of course comes a long time after this mm. but that you know it's it's about that kind of crime not being glamorous no. or you know they're, they're not heroic outsiders no, no it's ugly and boring and horrible yeah and utterly utterly meaningless yeah. in that thing and it's you know it starts with an organised heist that goes wrong yeah. uh, and the guy who asks them mm. to, to to rob him yeah. just you know the fear of that moment yeah. building up but it is it's it's kind of nastily comic yeah. uh, and, he, and he manages that very very well there's a moment where lloyd is in is in prison and he's thinking about the the rabbit that he, oh, had, that he forgot horrible. to feed and and it seems that in that moment where he's starving that's probably the first moment of empathy he's ever experienced in his life mm. and it is painful and as empathy often is and frightening he's, he looks at himself and sees a man that he does not like and then 
his Messiah comes and saves him and gives him a job and makes him important and, and is kind to him. And that is really, really frightening. That's the seductive thing about Randall. And that's yes. one of the, maybe the clever things that I'd almost forgotten. Um, that it's no good if, if, you know, a Satan figure in these books is just unpleasant to everybody all the time no. because nobody would no. would be tempted or drawn in. And that, that's the point is mm. that, you know, it's it's... You know, he is a false god. Mm. He is doing it in yeah. order, uh, you know, well, for his own ends. Well, Lloyd's journey is so similar to Larry's. Journey, right, where, right. Where Larry is, the, <laughs> he is, he is also arrogant and, and selfish and is also um, an addict, which is not the same thing as being arrogant and selfish, but he is also an addict and, and he is given a job and and yeah. is important and, mm. and becomes valuable to people and they have a you know i think that's a really clever bit about the book that these two characters are are allowed to stand next to each other and we see their journeys the same i think the way that it works for trash can man and for um tom yep these two characters who have been diminished by their circumstances and yeah I like that bit. What's your best bit? My best bit? Yeah. Well, in fact, I think what's interesting about my best bit is I think almost it works in reverse to your, the redemptive qualities you see in, in Lloyd's trajectory and, and Larry's trajectory. Is that I think my favourite bit is almost like the beginning of, uh, of a sort of decline in, in Fran Goldsmith's fortunes, which is that mm. when she buries her death. Yeah. Which I think is the is the last moment of autonomous agency she is given. Yeah, it is. It's, it's almost I, I find it frustrating because we constantly ask the question, can King write women? Mm. And you see flashes like that and you you can. You can write women, why yeah. don't you do it? Because after yeah. that it's almost like mm. she gets reduced to you know being a womb. Yeah. 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 You know, she is the sort of mm. and and then it's all about what she represents in relation to to Stu Redmond's ascent to the you know model of yeah. all American hero in the new world <laughs> of other. It, it is, and and she's really only there so that the novel can have a baby at the end of mm. it. And it's 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 a shame really because I think I, I think of of the road Cormac McCarthy's book, and and this is a book about a father and a son, but I do not think that motherhood and the propagation of the human species and women's role in that and women's um, particular frightening um, status post-apocalypse is at all ignored in that book I think it's really important and it's, mm -hmm. it's in there it's present it's done really well and we are in the point of view of a pregnant woman and, and very rarely does she think about how many women die in childbirth without medical aid. You know, she, hmm. It's just not there at all. Do you think that's one of the sources of frustration with <laughs> Joe Hills the fireman? Because that sort of works on the same premise, doesn't it? That's the need for women's ability to, you know, say the next generation mm. or, you know, delay the destruction of all humankind is, is kind of yeah. the, the central narrative to, to it's Stephen King's son Joe Hill yeah. and it, mm. people catch fire spontaneously combust all over the place and okay. bring about the end of the world <laughs> <laughs> Just, no but I'm wondering whether there is mm. I know that it's become more um, obvious in his later fiction that he's he's kind of done away with the right I'm going to become a 
successful writer in my own right without telling people who my dad is. Mm. Now it's like, well, people know anyway, so I might as well go all out and show the influence more overtly, and I think it's become more overt in Nosferatu and in The Fireman. I mean, the, the, the things that we were talking about in terms of what Randall Flagg represents to somebody like Lloyd is kind of copied in, in Nosferatu. Charlie Manx is that kind of Randall Flagg-esque mm. figure who has that... Charismatic kind of, villain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So who draws people to... made me want to read it. I know that... It is a good... It's, uh, yeah, I I know, you're, you're not... I know that you are um, giving us a critical response to it, but you still... The mm. idea that oh, yeah. burst into flames, I think, oh, I want to check that out. It starts in a school, doesn't it? Yeah. And the, 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 there's a teacher looking out the window and the students are all playing and there is a man combusting out of the window. And that's, yeah. Mm. I, I wanted to ask, I think Franz, as a character, Fran is deeply flawed. I think it's disappointment that we feel because I just totally agree with what you said, Alan. And mm. I think the early parts of her story are fantastic i think the yeah. the dynamic between her and her dad is really interesting her mom the fact that she's had a brother who's died she's like a real person yeah is interesting and smart exactly. and conflicted yeah. And, yeah. And, and yeah and, and the relationship that she has with harold is pretty interesting mm-hmm. in that she knows that he fancies her she doesn't like him but she needs his help and this is not particularly noble of her, but it's also really human. It's it's really nicely done. And then Stu comes on the scene and she's just a womb on legs. What yeah. do you think about Dana? Dana Jurgens. Underused. Such a good, <laughs> I think, such a good story. She should have been bigger I think, in the story. Yeah, she, I, I, yeah. I imagine her to be the way I wanted Franny to become. Yeah. I think Dana's a very strong individual that yeah. doesn't mind wandering off into Vegas and, no. and being a spy knowing mm. that it's very unlikely she'll come back. She's quite mean to Lloyd though. <laughs> <laughs> but Lloyd is officially a baddie so well, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> what should, uh, we didn't hear what your best bit was. Oh that I mean I think with, with Stephen King often it is the build up mm, to yeah. the crisis so the first 200 pages of the book yeah. I do kind of love mm. um, things go a little bit wrong for me when Randall appears not because he's not evoked brilliantly but he looks like he's wandering in from another story yeah. and of course in the wider because he is though Stephen King, King yeah and th- I know that's kind of retconning this book because the gunslinger and so on although he'd written short stories mm. um, didn't exist as such but he does very much you know, it's almost like a you know a Shakespeare character rocking up in the middle of a sensation yeah. fiction, yeah. where they're kind of they're both brilliant in their own way, and in some ways it's very very bold, mm-hmm. and you get from the get go it isn't done in this intimate way. It's written in this kind of um, this sense that you know there's something supernatural. He doesn't really know where he's from. Mm. He remembers being at these different events, mm-hmm. and I don't know if he was just listening to Sympathy for the Devil by uh, the Stones <laughs> as he wrote that character. Um, you know, relaxing in whatever way he relaxed in 1979. Um, but it does feel <laughs> kind of like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, that there's something kind of... Um, music is very important here. And th- th- there is something of, of, of the Stone song, I think, uh, about Randall Flagg that he's this charismatic devil figure. But it's never ambiguous mm. that there's something no, supernatural no. about him. And I think... I. You know, maybe there are good narrative reasons for doing that, and maybe that kind of abrupt shift in tone is is important. But I think quite often in King's novels, where 
you know, things are about to go horribly wrong. They're, they're most interesting at that kind of cusp moment. Yeah, um, it does really good build up, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not that I don't like it after, and yeah. I think there's, there's lots of interesting things that yeah. happen after that point. But but yeah, I think that, that the kind of different strands coming mm. together, um, being in LA with Larry, um, going on the road back, yeah, see all, all of that. that. Yeah, like, yeah. This is the the box set quality of it in a way or or when you say soap I think that's actually a much better comparison because we don't watch I don't know EastEnders or Coronation Street to get to the end do we we don't we don't watch it to Mm. to go towards that climax and I don't read the stand for the ending I read it for these these journeys of the and what's next yeah yeah did anyone watch sorry Helen I was just curious did anyone else watch the miniseries I'm Yes. I lent it to Alan. Yes, you did. And if you got it back? Not yet. I'm, only, I'm, I'm still, I've still got to finish it, but I'm, I'm getting there. Um, but even, even in that sense, I, I find it interesting that the number of, of cast members in that who are almost integral to the King universe in that they are used again. Mm. You know, in the sense that Rob Lowe appears as Nick. But then play, plays Ben Mears in a really, really horrible adaptation of Salem's Lot a few years later. Kathy Bates is, is in it, isn't she? She's Rob. Am I using? The, the, I think I'm using the wrong actor's name. The woman who played Annie, Annie in Misery. Yes. Yeah. Kathy Bates. Yeah. She's in it. She's Rob Flowers, the DJ, and they make Rob Flowers into a woman so mm. that Kathy can be in the miniseries, and she's. Brilliant in it. Am I right in thinking I've not seen the miniseries, but didn't Stephen King want her in it? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He's in it as well. Right. He's in it, and he is. Um, he's part of the cleanup crew in Boulder when they're all going around and and collecting the bodies and mm. praising for doing a good job. <laughs> it's interesting to, to mention Nick. Um, uh, I mean, and Rob Lowe, who I'm kind of borderline obsessed with in certain ways. Sometimes I like Rob. Sometimes I'm cross with Rob. But I do think about Rob more than is reasonable. Um, um, <laughs> I, I've read his autobiography. Um, I have, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the, maybe another podcast about me, me and Rob. But um, so yeah, I've not got around to seeing it. But but Nick as a character, I, I mean, in some ways, I was suckered during this reread of thinking, ah, Nick is going to be the messianic figure in yeah. it, and he has certain messianic uh, characteristics. Uh, and I don't know if it connects at all with, with, with your PhD work, Alan, or the, the, the work you're doing at the moment uh, about disability in the Gothic, in, in, in that sense, about you know, whether he's sentimentalised or mm. set up as a character yeah. who's innate decency and seems almost supernatural. I mean, you know, not yeah. quite, but there's, the, you know, he, he kind of rises above, you know, he, he's kind of crucified when we first meet him. He's you know, he's almost beaten to death mm. and he wakes up and the authorities are suspicious of him, but they just, they can't help but recognise. And he becomes and an good. angel, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, he, that's he, right, he, yeah. He speaks from he does. the grave. He does, yeah. I, I find it really troubling and, and the part where, now I forget her name, you might have to help me, the, the woman who they meet who is really horrible to Tom and later on goes to, to join what is she called? The giggly, childish the, one. The one wearing hot pants. Yes. <laughs> Not yeah. very much else. Yeah. yeah. Whatever she's... Yeah. That woman, um, she says, oh, it's... Um, a, a, and this is horrible language, which is belongs to her and not me, um, a, a retard and a dummy. Yeah. And, and it's... 
it, it seems to me that there's something quite schematic about that pairing which mm. I find troubling. Yeah, I think that's the main problem I've got with the representation of, of Nick is that Nick and, and vice versa is Nick requires Tom to function and Tom requires Nick yeah, to function. Yeah. They don't work independently no. and it's set up that way. Mm-hmm. But it also invites you to view them certainly in terms of their disabilities in terms of symbolically or mm. metaphorically. Of course. They don't and I think there are there's a lot of work being done in terms of disability studies at the moment about how to move away from a metaphorical model of disability representation. Mm. Mm. But I'm wondering whether there's something about the genre and the mode of gothic and horror which kind of invites that metaphor. In all sorts of ways, and it wouldn't just necessarily apply to to, to the characters, to those two characters and and the disability. There are other characters within it who take on this metaphorical, metonymic Mm. characteristic in different ways. But I I know that Stephen King talks about, uh, I've forgotten his name, uh, Hero, who's standing at the end. Is that Stu? Larry and... Who's the other guy? Larry, Glenn and... Now, who, who's left? Who, who's the daddy? Who's the kind of the guy who's lost his wife? Stu. Yes, yeah, Stu. Yeah. So Stu is, I think Stephen King talks about him his, as his Frodo, you know, yeah. the centre of this kind of Lord of the Rings-like universe. I, you know, I didn't go to Stu initially, mm. even though I'd read enough Stephen King novels yeah. to recognise that kind of blue-collar decency, yeah. this tragedy that he bears very stoically. Mm. You know, he's a stand-up guy. He's no pushover, and he's but he's very not a clever, bully. But not educated. Yeah, all yeah, of all of yeah. that. Um, but I, you know, I, I did see Nick much more in the Frodo uh, uh, realm, p- partly influenced by the more recent films rather than the, yeah. the the novel, because he, you know, he has this kind of Elijah Wood-like vulnerability yeah. and kind of decency, and if not childlike, he's you know he hasn't grown up as other people have grown up. He's He's been on his own for much of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he say, he brings out the best in other people mm-hmm. as well as the worst. So you get to know what people are like by the way in which they treat him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he isn't he isn't the only character who sort of exists at that kind of metaphorical level, um, I think. And I de- you know I think Stu in some ways, yeah. you know everything that you've said about him, yeah, he, you know, he he could come from another Stephen King novel. Yeah, yeah, he is. Stu is that kind of archetypal good American guy you know if he was in a different novel he'd be the cowboy wouldn't he yeah Mm. Julie was that her name that's her name Julie the family bible has been consulted <laughs> those it's those little details that bug me I can't remember that person's name it's on the tip of my tongue and it is a massive book with loads of characters so it's okay yeah. we, we jumble <laughs> them now and again and the way that the um, mini series combines characters mm. yeah is quite they do that confusing. with Rita and Nadine don't they in and the that, TV yeah, series and that's really confusing yeah. because I think that Larry is so haunted by what happens with Rita yeah. and his treatment, first of his mother leaving her, then of Rita leaving her. It massively affects how he then goes on to relate to Lucy when he leaves her to go and make his stand. Yeah. It's, it's really important. And the way he doesn't leave her yeah. for Nadine yeah. when that's yeah. really that's the trajectory he should be going yeah. down. It's still, I mean, as much uh, you know, however much I, I like Larry's story, and I really do, it's still a story where the women are there in order to be left to yeah. help the man along with his self-development. And he was just on the verge of musical greatness. He was, but would it have been good for his soul? I don't know. Baby, can you dig your man? I know you've got 
Oh, there, there is, it exists. It exists, yeah. Wow. It's on YouTube. And, and is it done by like a well-known artist? Or I've a, got no idea. Right. This isn't Jackson Brown. <laughs> there is that West Coast kind of groove to it. I don't know whether Stephen King is living his own displaced <laughs> rock dreams by Larry. So. I think so. We were discussing that this morning, yeah, weren't we? His, um, Larry's band is the Tattered Remnants, isn't it? Yes. And what's Stephen, Stephen King's King band? Stephen King plays guitar for a band called the Rock Bottom Remainders. Right, okay. So I think there's a parallel. Right, right. Maybe this is what he's doing, deciding whether he wants to be Stu or Larry or Lloyd. <laughs> well, maybe he's just, you know, this bit of my personality can go here. <laughs> Yes. This bit of my personality can go here. Um, one thing I was going to ask you people about, in terms of the use of, of music, but also, particularly because we're talking about Harold Lauder. Mm. Mm. Is Harold Lauder sort <coughs> of the, a sort of. Does he anticipate the um, creation of Arnie Cunningham in Christie <gasps> in any way? <laughs> That's a, oh no! So, so what year was um, Christine? Eighty-three. Right, so it's quite soon after. Yeah, but also in terms of the way that every, in the same way, every chapter is prefaced by song lyric. Right. So there's sort mm-hmm. of like that, that sort of there's a teenage masculinity in mm. the use of their, you know, their stereos and whatever too. This is probably not a very good answer to your question, but when I was rereading this book in the light of um, what we are seeing now with the kind of men's rights activists, I thought, <laughs> gosh, Harold Harold Lauder is one of these. He'd be one of these guys. He is a meninist. He's a meninist. He's one of these guys on Twitter. He, you know, his whole character trajectory is basically yeah. he would be a troll wouldn't yeah, he he would yeah. spend all day yeah, yeah. He, 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 <laughs> he does he wants Fanny he's entitled to her because yeah. he was nice to her and he doesn't get her and that is that's it that's it yeah and that that's that's his entire angst in yeah. a nutshell isn't it I wanted her and you said I could have her and yeah. you said you didn't want her yeah but and I it, suppose that comes from the fact that when you think about the origins of the, the way they start to form communities. Mm. There's an element of, I'm the only one left, yeah. therefore I have won. Mm. And he sort of projects the idea of Fanny being his prize mm. as a result of him winning. Like yeah, survival as, as, as winning. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. And he thinks about that, doesn't he? He thinks about the people who bullied him and there's probably anybody who's had a hard time at school has imagined mm. being victorious yeah. in one way yeah. or another and yeah. or being famous or being the important one. Well, it's a very seductive narrative and, I mean, interesting talking about bullies on Twitter and in that world. There is that sense of, of, of damage and having lost before mm. and, and seeking compensation mm. in all sorts of scapegoating and, and, and verbal violence as and it were. the writer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always interested when writers write about writers. Yes. And the yeah. writer in this novel is Harold and his, his horrible poems. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, the writer in, in the novel in a, in a very real way, well, there are two, aren't there? I mean, the way that Fran documents everything yeah. in a diary in a sort of Nina... Mina Harker sort of way, mm. sorry. Yes. And the way that Nick Andros has to document yeah. everything yeah. Yeah. as yeah. a sort of substitute for the fact he can't articulate verbally what he yeah. wants to say. To and Larry writes songs as well. That's yeah. you know, was was a songwriter at least. 
But no, I was just taken by the fact that the first time we see Harold after the, the plague, he's in a car. You know, he can't, you know, he, he's driving around in this massive Cadillac because he can do anything he, he wants. Yeah. yeah. So in the absence of, of parents, he's kind of done the whole rebellious yeah. sign of leaving home and being mobile in, mm. in his own right. So the sort of... I think they do that really well in the miniseries where we see him in these ridiculous like leather chaps and you can see that that probably this is a young man who's thought quite hard about looting and wanting to loot before the opportunity presented itself. Mm. He's got a plan, he's getting the big bag, the leather jacket, <laughs> he's tooled up, he's got loads of guns and he is a, a, a figure of fun and I think you know what I find troubling in the way that is done is in that journey that they make towards Mother Abigail. Stu almost asking permission to, to, to date or to, to to take up with Fanny and mm. and there's that kind of you know, it's it's horrible. It's it's really, really horrible. Do do you think that King in, in these senses then is is good at representing uh, misogyny and male entitlement and insecurity and all those kinds of things. I mean, you know, there are classic arguments about about the genre that actually it gives vent to and allows authors um, to indulge in, mm. but at the same time will say, oh, I'm writing about that culture rather than endorsing it. But it does strike me that given how pathetic he is... And he is punished horribly. Yeah, his, yeah, his yeah. His death is probably... The one of the, the worst. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is a book that is full of death and is about death and mm. his yeah. is... It is a particularly nasty one. Mm. Yes, I'd say his was worse than the kid's death, and I think the kid's death is quite awful yeah. with the wolves. Yeah. But yeah, I think. Yeah. Oof. I, I don't think that this is an endorsement of that kind of very teenage mm. misogyny, but I also think that the women characters in the book are, have not been given their due. So, I mean, that makes it interestingly kind of ambiguous in all yeah. sorts of ways, doesn't yeah. it? That it's, you know, King fails his, his female characters, but it isn't because he has all these glorious, you know, heroic men either. I think that it's just a lack of interest. Right. Right, a lack of failure of attention. Yes, yeah, I think so. Do you think, Tom? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think he's... Because when he is interested, as, as Alan says, it's, the it's details great. are there, it's yeah. perfect, and then he's like, Franny, yeah, it'll be alright. Like, he's, he's, you almost get the sense of, oh, I'm done with, done with her. Yeah. Now. Whereas she, when it's about a woman um, for Rose Madder, yeah. it's great, it's fantastic. I'm wondering whether, I always remember seeing an, an interview with Seth MacFarlane when he was asked about why Meg Griffin is, is sort of lambasted and treated so horribly in Family Guy and it, he said it's because the writing team just don't know how to write women I'm wondering whether that's the, the, the sort of crisis of confidence that, that King has in terms of he believes he'd, te- he'd taken Fran as far as he could so he's, he's gone back to his default setting for the rest of the novels yeah, I mean, I wonder. You know, in the former case, hire some new writers. Then it would be my general yeah, advice. Yeah. I yeah. kind of, but with Stephen King, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I mean, he writes so much, mm. and you know, he, he's still producing so much that I that I wonder if 
a kind of a slowing down. I wonder if we'd had, mm. you know, kind of 10 Stephen King novels or yeah. maybe 13 as some of his peers over a similar amount of time might have might have written. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, at this stage, was Stephen King writing a novel a year or two novels a year? Yeah, even I then. Think cause this was his, because at this point, this is when he started writing the Batman stuff, wasn't it? Right, yeah. yes. He came yeah. up with the pen name because that was the only way he could release the second one. Right. Because his publisher told him there's no way that people would believe Bye. you're writing two a year. Yeah. Um, I mean, he can't even write the standard a year, did he? Should say it. the back. Should say it. Um, normally, yeah, 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 he normally says when. But um, I think, I mean, even now it's coming out with one a year. Yeah, I think he's, yeah, yeah. He said at one point he was writing two and a half thousand words a day. I mean, we spoke about this when we were doing The Shining, but I mm. think that Stephen King writes fantastically about addiction and mm. about yeah. compulsion and yes. about excess. Yeah. Mm. And I think the the Tommy knockers where we've got a character who's bleeding from the nose as if she's a coke addict and can't stop typing <laughs> um, is maybe quite nice when we think about what Stephen King's practice might have been like during this time. <laughs> that there's just something maybe that's not that good for you about sitting and typing all day. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about... I'm wondering, King does tend to write about what he knows. I mean, mm. I seen, I think that there, because there's a definite trajectory between, or sorry, correlation between the end of his believable chi- um, child characters and his own children growing up. Because mm. he, he said that he used to eavesdrop on conversations that, you know, his his boys were having, you know, when they mm. were playing or when they had mates over. So that you know he could replicate that dialogue. Mm. Also, he was aware of the sort of speech patterns that would yes, that he yeah, could replicate on the page. And There's a kind of reality effect. Yeah. To it, it has the, the yeah that that's kind of believability. Yeah. I mean, and I definitely think that uh, that it was start, that sort of dialogue was was stolen by the Dust Brothers for Stranger Things. That sort of you know. Sitting in one of your mates' basements in the 1980s, playing Dungeons and Dragons. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how all of this stuff now um, has become the basis of a nostalgic form of storytelling, mm. which I suppose is, um, you know, might be the basis of, of lots of other conversations in television and film. Uh, and, and King revisiting his own work because thinking about him representing obsession mm. and compulsion uh, and excess, I think mm. with the, the kind of the unholy trinity mm. he sort of invokes that we get we get in his work. But something like um, the, the Dark Tower, which is is it in seven books? Yeah, you know I've only read or one of those. Yeah, d- depending on whether you regard one of them as canonical, and now becoming films, but with the Randall Flag figure, who he says didn't start off as Randall Flag, but he kind of realizes the same person Um, and I suppose it's in that in that sense it's a version of the the hero with a thousand faces or the the villain with a thousand faces that you know they might move from book to book taking on the same um, uh, taking on different identities but that that desire to kind of create a literary universe and that we think all Stephen King's books are kind of happening in or at least parallel universe because that's yeah. what happens in, in that series mm. isn't it yeah. Um, yeah. that we get characters from Salem's Lot and The Stand and so on yeah I, I think that this is perhaps the because obviously we're on what podcast six of, the, of this rereading so I think this is the first novel in which it becomes apparent that that's what he's 
starting to try and cultivate and this is a novel that has the sort of scope and scale for him to then sort of branch out from mm. from there so whereas Carrie is a little bit isolated in, in that sense isn't it? yeah as a, as a text and so this is perhaps the first time where you see you know um, where the branches are going to go out from um, were you reading Dance Macabre is the mist in that I think it's mentioned the, the mist is um so the, the film that was made for TV, the main character in The Mist is painting a picture of the gunslinger before mm. everything kicks off. Mm. Mist comes up quite soon yeah. after, the, after the stand. They're just making that, is it on TV in the next few weeks, a new yeah. version of The Mist? Yeah. Was Frank Darabont involved with that? Was he just involved with the... Do you do a movie mm. version? Don't know because I I've been doing my research, my own research, and I've been living in my little bubble mm. of not interacting with the world because it's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it. It takes something, doesn't it? We took, started by talking about this as escapist literature, and yeah. you're feeling poorly. Yeah. I've got to say, I, I didn't feel at all bleak, or that this was too close to the bone no. as I was reading it. It just felt, in some senses, well, at least there, there might be a surviving community where there are some nice and decent people <laughs> left yeah. on the earth. Yeah. Although I seem to remember having a conversation with you about this when we sort of first approached you about doing this, where you, where you said yes, and with the bleakness and the more bleakness and the more bleakness. Whereas now this is actually quite uplifting. Yeah. In comparison to the real world we're currently living in. It's curious. I mean, I've I've read in the last couple of years an awful lot of post-apocalyptic. Um, catastrophe fiction in different ways and I kind of I mean it's all been 21st century stuff with a few precedents but I see how much and how many writers directly or just via uh, where King's influence goes in in popular culture I mean he's a writer who thrives on pop culture I was trying to remember who he quoted at the beginning of the book and it's it's Springsteen you know he starts with a quotation from Jungle Land which is one of my favourite songs from one of my favourite albums and that's even where the title of the, the book comes from Making yeah. their stand, yeah. and that comes from from Jungle Land, um, which isn't remotely a, a, an apocalyptic tune, apart from the sense of being something kind of revelatory and uh, you know fighting death and all of that kind of all that kind of stuff. But I, I, King is such an influence in a weird kind of way, and I don't mean that all of these people were sitting down as I was as a teenager reading it, but he's he, he's he's kind of everywhere. Yeah. And somebody I kind of like to m- mention in relation to this, particularly in relation to the stand, is. Is David Mitchell? Yeah. Um, so I don't know um, if he's read um, Stephen King. I'd kind of be surprised if he hasn't. But I think what Steve, uh, what David Mitchell has done with his kind of extended universe, mm-hmm. the fact that now all of the books are connected, and as he said, he didn't know that at the start, but he's now writing this kind of er uh, novel, and a novel that itself is is plugged into the pleasures of pop culture. It's full of illusion. Uh, it plays around with time a lot. You know, there are connections with television. Um, Slade House is, is is like something that Stephen King might have written in the mid '80s in some ways. Um, and the fact that we get characters cropping in and out, and we get these um, supernatural elements, which I know that not everybody thinks necessarily enhance the novels um, in different ways. I think it, David Mitchell has sort of a very interesting, whether entirely invited or not relationship with the King dynasty in that Joe Hill does have a lot of references to David Mitchell's fiction in his fiction. Oh does he? Yeah so like so in 
Nosferatu, um, the the main figure, and I can never remember her name. It's been a while. It's Victoria something. Um, but her neighbour um, is Mr. Dizoni. Oh right. So I right. think there are deliberate sort of yeah branching out there connections. And, yeah. So whether it's a <sighs> An acknowledgement that they're not the only ones doing the Ur text thing mm. and building a universe. I think there's that little thrill that you get, and I know for some people it will put them off. Mm. You know, it's it's kind of um, I know this isn't the only iteration of this phrase, but it's kind of fan service in that mm. way, and it's something that people worry about with Doctor Who or whatever. That you know, is it at its best when it's just doing its telling an individual story about a fellow. Uh, and his friends travelling around the universe. And similarly, with, with, with Stephen King, would it be better if these were just discrete takes on the universe, or do they all have to kind of connect and add up to something? Is there a kind of folly de grandeur about about doing something like that? But I think it's something we start doing as readers. We start saying that's a little bit like, um, you know, that earlier moment in his fiction. Yeah, I think with with King more than any other writer I've come across, I think he he does. He is aware that anybody who reads one of his novels, he likes to read them all, <laughs> um, or that his his fans are very uh, committed to uh, reading everything, almost because it's like a badge of honour. Um, I don't think we're the only ones, for example, doing a reread, are we? No. We've had like five or six messages from people going, "Yeah, we do this." When you say committed, you mean committed as in bumping into somebody at a service motorway service station and following them into the gents to ask them questions about the uh, the novels, or mm, not that I've come across, no. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> I suppose it's like an Easter egg, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. The committed fans. Yes. I'm yeah. listening to you speak about this, and I'm thinking, well, I haven't read all the King novels, and there's a big. I haven't read like Dark Tower. Um, I haven't read any of those. I haven't read many of the Richard Bartman novels, and I think to myself, I don't know, I'm maybe not a typical, st- I would count myself as a fan, maybe not a typical one, I am I'm not a completist, and what happens when I read a new Stephen King book or a short story and come across that little connection, and what happens is that I feel expert, I feel rewarded, yeah. it's like yeah. a compliment, isn't it? Mm. And I think, I think there's a bit of it that's for that, but you know, it, it, he's very aware of his constant reader and what yeah. these yeah. constant readers might want or don't mm. want. I've, I've been listening um, the past few months to his um, audiobook versions of some of his short stories and he's very keen to introduce them, to talk around them, yeah. he's very keen to talk directly to his reader to um, influence or perhaps control the way that we receive mm. some of these short fictions. And I think that, yes, there may well be this artistic um, urge to create a proxy universe, uh, a mythos, something maybe mm. a little bit um, monomaniacal uh, about it, a bit a bit, a bit strange, a bit, a bit godlike about it. But I think also it's just quite a clever way to keep people buying the yeah. unit. Mm. And, and he's a writer who is intensely aware and, and interested in his um, the way that he lands. You know, he's, he's in, in the world he's very well known for having feelings about his lack of Pulitzer, about, about mm. the way the literary mm. community has pigeonholed him and pegged him. I think he's very invested in 
maybe not controlling but influencing that I think that that might be one of the reasons why I think he is so keen to sort of almost transcend his categorization as a literary figure and become mm. more of a, a cultural figure mm. in terms of you know he'll sign anything they'll get another adaptation of his his work out there um, and for him to appear in it um, but also appear in other forms of media mm. so um, there's the Hierophant album where he which he narrates which is an end of the world the Shooter Jennings yes it's Shooter black, Jennings Black Mirrors mm. yes yeah where he he's a radio DJ emceeing oh. the end of the world. <laughs> that sounds very apt. <laughs> There's something, I mean, I'm really, really two minds about it because there are, there are parts of that, parts of this perhaps control, this wish to reward, to influence, to direct the reader that, that we see in various ways that I think is very canny, career-wise, is quite instrumental, that I think lands with me as a little bit controlling and get, getting in the way and there's another bit of it that I really admire which it seems to speak to me of such a great playfulness and, and such a great belief in fiction and in story and its mm. power and that even as a, a technician, a practitioner of it the magic still works on him as well and, yes. and he joins in and he wants to play and I guess it can be both of those things at the same time but I, it makes me feel happier reading these books if I try and remember it as the second. There's <laughs> also an element. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I was going to agree with that. Uh, there's also an element, I think, maybe of an awareness of his own mortality in terms of how long he's got to create the cultural legacy he wants. Mm. I know that, for example, that he says that he occasionally sort of meets a literary festival or whatever, Donna Tart, and feels the need to sort of go up to her, shake her and say, do you realise how little time we've got? Mm. You've only produced like four books before you die. Mm. Um, She's amazingly fastidious, but she writes similarly compelling books. Mm. I mean, there is there are similarities, yeah, yeah. but there's this kind of negative image thing. Mm. And she describes herself as like a, a deep space astronaut. Mm. You know, if, when she goes out, she goes out for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that, but I wish there were five more books because I love mm. all three of them so far. Maybe King will like, gift the next five. <laughs> <laughs> right, them under the pen they've done it up. I wonder if in years to come, perhaps after um, he's sadly no longer with us, we'll realise that he was writing much even more and there were other pen names that had mm. never come to light. I'm not sure because I think he quite likes to be known. I think he quite likes to be out there. His work. Yeah. I do, you know, and, and like you say, he likes to get involved in the adaptations, he likes to talk, yeah. he likes to join in with his reader. He's got that new one coming out at the end of the year, hasn't he? That uh, TV, is it a HBO or an ABC, mm. Castle Rock, yeah. which yeah. is built around his yeah. universe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did he sell that with JJ Abrams yeah. because of his work on 1122 for Hulu? So I think there were obviously figures he, I mean, I don't think, you know, we'd have ever seen another. Film adaptation of King directed by Kubrick. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, like JJ Abrams, maybe given the keys to the to so Castle Rock. Castle Rock will take characters from the King universe. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, then you, you early on you talked about this being like box set television in some yeah. ways and those kinds yeah. of pleasures, and it connects again with the you know Alan and I kind of geeking out about these 
this the shared universe yeah, um, yeah. that's become a kind of very big thing in recent years. Yeah. And I'm I'm interested in that at a storytelling level and a, a level of you know what it which bits of our brain it tickles mm. as an audience because it does give me a kind of thrill and I think it is mm. you know partly a flattery thing, but I think it's partly that both writers are interested in connection and coincidence mm. in a way that you know echo somebody like Dickens yeah. you know, whose novels are often based around those things I think they've, they've pushed those ideas in their fiction and I think David Mitchell does it because he's interested in it ethically as well as aesthetically yeah. I think he's interested in the ways in which we're dependent on each other yeah. and those yeah. those kinds of all the, the ways in which we might exploit each other mm-hmm. and that there are storytelling opportunities that, that result from that kind of ethical friction um, but, but King was doing it, been doing it for years and years mm-hmm. in a kind of speculative way and you feel that there is a there is an experimental dimension although he's a popular writer mm-hmm. I think there, there is a weird kind of modernism to him in that sense that he's yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's playing with popular forms but he's always doing something he's often doing something rather new with mm-hmm. it yeah I mean I think that King is um, very aware of, of modernist discourses. I mean, he's the um, influence of, of T.S. Eliot is is prominent throughout his you know his body of work. Um, what I was wondering was, in terms of the we're talking about the sort of soap opera quality to it, and, uh, and I'm wondering whether this is a particularly timely discussion to be having now, given that. Twin Peaks has returned to our to our screens, and whether there's a kind of similar cultural trajectory going on there. I mean, David Lynch, who I know far far less about, um, so the only thing I know is that, in one sense, he he is a kind of anti-narrativist in some ways. That you know, he takes story and kind of dissolves it, and yet Twin Peaks, the the pleasures of it, and I did watch it when it was first on. I didn't see the whole series I'm not an obsessive relation to it but I'm looking forward to to revisiting it and seeing the new series mm-hmm. is that you know that it was these simple storytelling pleasures that that built up and then that he played around with and uh, and inverted and so on but a lot of people who love David Lynch like the kind of the weirdness and the fact that things don't add up but they also want to return to that narrative world as well I was just thinking about what you were saying about run-up and anticipation and I really, really love Twin Peaks but as soon as we find out who killed Laura... I stopped watching like, it the first time as soon cares? as I found out. Like, you know, yeah. Who cares? Because it's not, it's not, um, it's not a crime drama and, no. and something to do with endings perhaps is... is I'm not going to articulate and So did you like it when it was a crime drama and didn't like it when it No, I like, I, like, I like the run-up. I, liked, right. I like the relationships between these characters. I like the oddness. I liked living in this world. I right. liked the yeah. fact that there was loads more going on there than I understood. And then once we get an answer, who killed Laura Palmer is your excuse for turning up, um, but you don't really care that much. Right. And I think it's quite similar with a lot of Stephen King's right. fiction the end is your excuse for turning yeah. up, but mm. when it comes, yeah. and he that he's he admits himself to not being yeah. very strong on endings, doesn't yeah. he? He says that his writing is all about the journey yeah. and the ending. It's tricky. I think it's tricky for lots of writers, and because of him as a populist writer, working within genres that are often, to borrow that Frank Camo term, kind of end determined. Yeah. You know, something like Agatha Christie might have been really good at it, mm. and and kind of. 
uh, at tripping us up and even though the, it's it's hidden in plain sight we don't quite see it and I often forget mm. from reading or watching to, to watching they're immensely kind of pleasurable endings yeah. in that sense when they're you know when they're when they're executed well yeah. but a lot of Stephen well, King books really uh, annoy me at the end yeah. this yeah. less yeah. so yeah. than yeah. others but the, the end really annoyed me because it felt that it made quite a lot of want, what went before totally relevant that that so much like if we're relying on these two guys being in that place at that time then what were the spies for? Didn't matter. What was this journey for? Why did Stu have to go? Why? Why any of it? Yeah. You know, it didn't seem to matter at all. I kind of wish that the stand was a very long running soap, and that we could just. I think you think of stuff like The Walking Dead, you know, something mm. like that, where you mm. just get to live in this world and see mm. what it's like to be in this world. I think it'd work really well. And the ending, I just. It just seems so unbelievably unreasonable. And it fizzled as well. <laughs> I quite I think what was poetically nice there was quite there was rhyming action was it was Trashcan who yeah. brought in the bomb and that almost the the fulfilment of Trashcan's lifelong dream his trajectory as a character of him getting what he wants yeah and he does and get the redemption he yeah, is seeking yeah, it's just not does. the one he thinks yeah, he's looking for yeah. but a lot else of it didn't quite work for me right um i'm afraid guys we're gonna have to wrap up as okay. interesting as this is so i'd like to just take a minute to thank everybody for coming along today thank you, thank you. And, um, what a pleasure not a problem. Maybe we should do it again sometime. I do hope so. We should. Yeah. Brilliant. Your pleasure.